Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Brian Wozolowski, and it's time to talk tech. Today we'll be talking about the importance of quality student data and data protections for children in foster care. We welcome two passionate advocates from Casa New Orleans, a nonprofit that advocates for foster children. And then we bring you an update from Brussels on a controversial new directive aimed at modernizing copyright law, but that many believe might fundamentally change the open nature of the internet. It's not uncommon for students to change schools multiple times during the course of their education. Unfortunately, the data about them doesn't always follow. And while there may be reasons for not wanting a data trail, lack of student data at the new school can lead to a myriad of problems. One group of students who this is certainly true for are those in foster care. Joining us today to talk about data sharing are Joy Bruce, the executive director of CASA New Orleans, and Katie Bradley, who was part of the foster care system in New Orleans and now interns with CASA. Welcome, Joy and Katie. Good morning. So great to have you here. So I'm going to start with you, Joy. Tell me a bit about CASA New Orleans, what CASA stands for first, of course, and what services y'all provide. Sure. CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. We fight for the rights of abused and neglected children. So we match kids who are in foster care, who are through the court system, with caring and competent adults who advocate for their best interests. There are CASA programs all over the country, so most of your listeners have probably heard of a CASA program. Um, as you all probably know, there's two different ways that you can do nonprofits that are national. One is if you have that one centralized one and then local chapters and everything gets pushed down uniformly. Ours is the other way, okay. um, similar to how United Ways are constructed where we're all individual 501c3s. We are members of the National CASA Association, but we do have some differences. So every CASA program has one core mission. They recruit, train, and support community volunteers to advocate for the best interest of abused and neglected children in court systems. So that is the same. But because we're all local and we have those slight differences, we can really respond to the needs of our communities. And so what that looks like in New Orleans might be different than New Mexico, might be different than here in DC, right? Sure. Um, so our program um, in Louisiana, um, we're all court-based programs that are um, they're all nonprofits that are serving the courts, um, which is pretty typical, I think, of a lot across the country. Ours here is a little different in that we were the first in our state and one of the few in the country to follow kids after they age out of foster care. Oh, that's right. And so in Louisiana, um, up until this session, Katie and I have been very involved in policy conversations and, and moving some things in the state. But um, up until right now, um, when a kid turns 18, they age out of foster care. And our state is one of only six that does not provide additional services for them. And so we have continued that. And so our kids are from birth, we have drug-exposed newborns, all the way through the K-12 system up until 18, and then their involvement with the court ends at 18, but we have continued to follow them. 
Um, and so Kiti is one of those first cohorts that we committed to six years ago and said, we're going to follow you into young adulthood as you transition. And now she is getting ready to graduate college, which is amazing and a complete statistical anomaly in all of the best ways. Well, well let's um, pivot to that quickly. Kiti, <laughs> yeah. tell us what you're studying, where you go to school. Congratulations, first of all. Oh, thank you. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak here of course. with you guys. But yes, I am a senior right now at the University of New Orleans and I major in sociology. So it's kind of also with a minor in like business and um, policy and stuff like that. So, and it's been like a great experience, like with, from high school, from middle school, college to college now. And, you know, the people who like have helped me along that way was CASA and who stayed with me like no matter what. And, you know, even though some people was probably coming in and out of my life and changed, but my CASA advocate, Kaylin Wah, and of course, like the whole CASA program itself, like stayed those main, those main people in my life. That's amazing. <laughs> do you know what you want to do when you graduate? That's oh. probably the question you get asked too much, and you're oh, like, come God. on, yes. chill out, people. Yes, I do. I, you do. I'm, I'm not going to pinpoint and say exactly where I would fall, because obviously, um, as a youth, like we probably change so much, and other things going to be like happening in life. But I can say I do want to help children and families and work upon the degree of like with policy well everyone listening you're on the job market and what you graduated may is that about right yeah all right so if kitty's looking for a job reach out to us we'll connect you to her you're going to be more amazed as we talk to her further (laughs) 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 all right back to the topic at hand um so uh data sharing is what we're talking about Mm -hmm. data sharing specifically between schools why is this such an important uh, issue when it comes to um, children in foster care? Well, they move a lot. Um, and one of the things that gets disrupted the most when they move from place to place is education. Um, the system, unfortunately, does a terrible job of considering education when they're making those moves. So for a child in foster care, their custodial parent is the state. A lot of people don't realize that. Um, They're Mm -hmm. staying in a foster home, but the foster parent is limited in what they're able to give permissions for, how much control they have over that child's life. They're providing food and shelter and hopefully some care and comfort, but their role is not to be the, the custodial parent of that child. It's the state. So when the state of Louisiana is your parent, states while individual people within that structure might be making decisions in a child's best interest, states and government agencies are making decisions based on financial interests, right? And so sometimes, literally, we're having conversations about moving units of children. And I know that sounds terrible, but that's exactly terrible. how it works. When when placements are being determined and and the department is looking for places to put kids, it's a supply and demand conversation. Are there enough foster homes in this area for this child? Do they need to move to a group home? Are the group homes only located in this part of the state, right? And so, so many other things are going into that conversation that really have nothing to do with, is this a good school for that child? And do they have good schools in that area? Mm. And timing is often not considered as well. And so they're not moving at times that make sense, let's move over Christmas break, right? Right. They're moving in the middle of whatever because um, certainly for older kids, they often disrupt placements. We can have this whole conversation about trauma and what that means for a child and their need to feel like they've got some control over a very out-of-control life. And so one of the ways that you can see that manifest if it's not treated well is that a youth will disrupt a placement or a foster parent will disrupt the placement, right? And 
if that's the case, then um, schooling is left out of that conversation. And so now you've got this scramble where a child was living in this particular jurisdiction Mm -hmm. and now they've moved to a different jurisdiction um, or they've moved to a different part of the state. How do we make sure that there's as little disruption to their education as possible? So if they had an IEP, if they um, just basic understanding about trauma-informed care and what that kid needs, needs to follow them. And you're not going to have a parent advocate in the same way. So while other transient populations also share many of these concerns, obviously, if you're homeless but you're staying with a caring and competent parent, a parent can advocate for you in those ways. Um, If you're a military child, a parent can advocate for you in those ways. But if a child moves from one region of the state to another, they're going to get a different foster parent, a different social worker. Everything is going to change, right? The only thing that's going to stay the same is the court of jurisdiction, but the judge isn't going to school to check you in, right? Yeah. So there needs to be a baseline amount of information that's being shared. Um, of course, that needs to be balanced because information can also be weaponized against a child. Sure. And so that's a really nuanced conversation that we could spend way more time than you have. But it it has to be um, primary when we're having these conversations about data portability that when a child is moving and they don't have the people that most children have moving along with them, how do we make sure that that information goes along so that their education is disrupted as little as possible? That makes a lot of sense. And I was actually told by our privacy team that Louisiana has a fairly new privacy bill Mm -hmm. uh, that has impacted your work a bit. What did it do and how has it kind of hurt some of the data sharing that's needed? Well, I it's one of those double-edged swords things, right? Okay. And so, so maybe we're going to have to get into the balancing conversation, well, right? We can do it. <laughs> well, just because that what's good for one child and this important need for privacy um, is often not good for another. And sometimes that's not a foster care versus not foster care conversation. Sometimes it's a conversation about different kids in foster care or who have been in foster care because some kids are better advocating for their own needs than others. And so for those kids who are pretty independent um, or are good at self-advocating or do maybe have really great social workers or really great foster parents who, you know, do what they can within that, then maybe the privacy concerns aren't as big for them because they've got that support structure around them. But for our kids who don't have that, um, not having that information and having to basically start all over again every time you move schools or you move to another area can be really detrimental to that child. Kitty, I'd love to turn to you. Have you experienced this? Did you move a lot during uh, you know, your K-12 days? And did you experience any of this as you shifted to a new school, not having data come with you? Yes, absolutely. I definitely moved a good bit and definitely changed some teachers and obviously changed foster parents too as well. And just people coming in and out as far as like even like therapy sessions and stuff like that changed with different people too. So I mean that that meant taking like time to get used to like my per say professors now since I'm thinking like college, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but teachers <laughs> um, as well. And I mean also different guiding counselors too. I had to talk to as well. And my, the way my how it was for me, like, being in, like, sometimes I would feel like some teachers 
do need to know because I mean, like 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 Joy has said, when we come in, the state is our like caretaker. Yeah. Like, even though we're staying with a foster parent, our foster parent is not the one who would be signing a, a permission slip to say, oh yeah, my child could have photos with the school. Like our uh, permission slip saying, yeah, my child could go on a field trip. Who you know? does sign? So the state signs that. Yeah, the state signs that. So oh. that means, and sometimes I bet that state, doesn't move quickly. <laughs> no, it does not move quickly at all. And I wish that it. That we encourage and like we talk to like our teachers and our school systems on like the the t- how how something needs to be signed in like a timely fashion or what needs to happen in a certain amount of time so we could get it to our social workers because obviously they're going to have to be the ones that sign mm-hmm. it because of like policies and procedures that you know we understand but we just wish that it would go in another way according to help the the youth I mean and families just in general but because. I mean, uh, permission slip probably would be going to, like, some people like to call it the normal child. And I'm like, what is the normal child compared to, like, the other <laughs> child? I do not like that term. But so your average child would basically have a permission slip sign in maybe, like, a week. Or you could give it, they could give it to their parents in, like, the last day to be able to sign yeah. it. Right there. Bam. Child's gone on a trip. In my case or any other foster youth's case, like, that's not going to happen like that because since the DCFS worker has to sign, you probably will have to get that permission slip to them two weeks in advance because they have so many cases and so many children on their caseload. Mm-hmm. They have to make sure everything, you know, goes along with their protocol and how in a timely fashion on seeing them. So it wouldn't happen that way. Yeah. And sometimes the need is the opposite. So, you know, in those cases, you need to have further information in advance in order to to accommodate a foster care population. Sometimes you need to be able to react more quickly. So I'm thinking about um, two cases specifically. So one was a, a young man who was on track to go to college. He was doing really well. He was in his senior year. He was transferred. He had been living in the northern part of our state and was transferred back to New Orleans because everybody felt like as he was getting ready to turn 18, he should be back in New Orleans. Well, the way his records were transferred were not handled well at all. And so his new school told him that he had to repeat his senior year. Oh, my goodness. And it was so demoralizing to him that he ended up, after he turned 18, he dropped out. Because instead of graduating before his 18th birthday and continuing on the the trajectory that he was on, he was now 18. He was uh, unaccompanied at this point on his own, completely demoralized that he had to repeat, and he dropped out. Um, I also think about some of our kids who – miss opportunities for higher education for other reasons. So, um, you know, the statistics are nationally 3% of former foster kids finish college, which is really, really low. Um, And the numbers who attempt aren't a whole lot higher than that. Um, And so for some of my kids, for instance, we have um, Posse is in New Orleans. It's a a national nonprofit that helps place kids um, in college. But the kids that I have nominated for Posse, because I'm a nominator, are ones that often guidance counselors haven't chosen because they haven't built that relationship up, right? And it's natural and it's totally understandable, but as the guidance counselors are thinking, I only have a certain number of slots mm-hmm. to nominate a kid for a Posse scholarship, they're picking the kids who are 
really worthy, but they've been there for three or four years throughout high school, and that guidance counselor knows them really well. And so if the foster kid just ended up there at the beginning of their senior year, halfway through their senior year, or even as a junior, they're less likely to be chosen for that. So the kids that I'm picking who have successfully gotten Posse scholarships weren't identified by their schools as being that kind of kid or on that kind of track. Um, And maybe if there had been a better flow of information – um, and a better understanding of what kind of student they are, then they would be able to get some of those other opportunities that aren't out there yeah, um, that makes sense. for our Katie. kids. Yeah, and to piggyback off of basically what Ms. Joy is saying, so obviously they have to build a, uh, a relationship with the, the counselor. So in some cases, a youth probably don't want to build you know, a relationship because that means going into the actual specific events that maybe led them into foster care. So, Because obviously if that, guiding, if that guiding counselor is making a recommendation for youth, then of course, they want to know more about you, how you are, what you've been through. Because sometimes it's good when applying to like a college, or it's good when applying to like other like scholarships and stuff like that. On how that guidance counselor know you and what you have like mm-hmm. persevered through. Like no matter what, even though all these things was going on in this child's life, this child, this child still persevered like through everything. And that means that they would have to know that you've been in foster care. They would have to know that maybe you were homeless. All this, and sometimes a youth just doesn't want to share that. So maybe that relationship does not get built. And sometimes. Sometimes that can hurt you because yeah. that person, you know, you wouldn't be able to go to the posse program. And, you know, or sometimes it could help you, like, knowing a good person like Miss Joy to be able to vouch for you. Because you know that Miss Joy, you know, sometimes understands that confidentiality piece. That doesn't mean that counselor wouldn't have done that. But you just have built that relationship with Miss Joy instead of that guiding counselor that you had due to, like, you know, moving and everything yeah. else too as well. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to build relationships and to have to do it on a regular basis for such an important purpose would, would be challenging regardless of the reason. So when you add that layer that you just explained, that's, that's a really important valuable point. Um, So you both, I'm going to pivot back to data here. You're both in town for a workshop at the very lovely Eaton Hotel down the street from our CDT offices here. Uh, And the the workshops on data portability and student sharing as we've been talking about. If you could improve things, what would you like to see improved when it comes to this process? That is so tricky. That's why I asked um, it. I, I'm looking for your <laughs> wisdom here. Um, I, my first answer, honestly, is uh, trauma-informed practices, but that's at a much more um, what school it, level. In other it. words, what are we doing with this information? Because so much of it is hyper-local. I want you to have this information if you're going to handle it in a trauma-informed way, if you're going to handle that child in a non-blaming, non-shaming way, if you're going to use this information as a a tool to help them access resources, to maybe gain access to opportunities that are out there for students who have been on a non-traditional path. If that's the case, I want you to have it. If you're a school that's going to weaponize this information or be insensitive, um, I don't want you to have it. Well, that's really hard when we're creating policy at the national and state level, right? Because we don't know who's going to use it. Um, And so keeping that in mind, not just the philosophy or culture of the groups that are doing it, but maybe it's identifying specific people who have access to it. So information should follow a youth, but maybe everybody, as Katie said earlier, isn't on blast with that information. You know, can we make it specific to certain actors within the system that they need to have access to that information? But there's an understanding of how then they utilize it, right? Um, Because 
there is a tendency in foster care in general, and I think this is true for a lot of transient populations, to treat kids like case files. You know, I have the stack of papers, so I understand who this kid is. No, you don't. Yeah. Right? But on the other hand, you can't have a child show up with nothing attached to them and then expect them to be able to to be on equal footing with the kids who have been in that school for a lot longer period of time. So balance, I think, is what I would want people to um, keep in mind as much as possible and encouraging people to use this information in good faith, but protecting against those who who won't, right? Yep. Katie, I saw you clapping at one point. <laughs> <laughs> what I would say is like a big piece. Um, so obviously we know most of the time like ACT, SAT scores, and sometimes they like they call it like the end of year, kind of like the EOC end of year, kind of like um, exams that they do end of year courses, they do that. So most of the time that's what they're sharing with these students and telling them, okay, well this is how well you did on this test or this is how awful you did on this test, this is what we're sharing. But I feel like we should want to bring our students and our parents on board even before we're doing testing saying like, okay, this is the area that you you need help in or this is the area that you don't need help in and I feel like a lot of those times we don't do that like say for instance like I'm a math girl all the way I would say (laughs) you could help me out though (laughs) (laughs) so I just love me some numbers and but English like I mean I do good in English of course like to pass and do well but I wouldn't say like I love English like that like you know my sister's the English person I'm the math person we always do that I mean some people could be both but some not so I would say in school, you should probably should help a youth out before we get to standardized testing and saying like, okay, well, this is the area of English that you may need to work on. Because mm-hmm. um, sometimes I would say like with English with me, I always have a problem with opening, but I could definitely give you details and I could close it out like a bang. <laughs> but opening is just like a no. And sometimes I feel like we fall short on that, like with schools, like helping them to understand or even parents, like help helping them with like tracking what has been going on, like how the child's development is going on in school and how we're doing that. We can't just, you know, just only share standardized testing. I think that's where we're not doing a good job at, like doing something before then saying what we need to fix or what we don't. Right. And so I think what you're really getting at is context for the information, making sure that when we share data, we're sharing that data in context. Um, Because even things like GPA need to be looked at in context. I'm thinking about um, one of the young men that I've worked with who he was in five different schools his freshman year. And so his GPA was about a point one. Yeah. Right. Um, I think I mean, do he, GPAs even transfer from school? I mean, you'd have yeah. to imagine that every school has a oh, slightly different way of it calculating was, it, it was even within the same state. Yeah. It was it was awful, and he then changed schools a couple times his sophomore year, um, and then he finally found stability in his junior year, and he did his junior year and his senior year in the same school. And when he found that stability by his senior year, his GPA in those individual um, quarters was a 3.0 and then a 3.25 and then a 3.5 and then a 3.75, right? Wow. Each quarter it got higher. He lettered in football and basketball. He was homecoming king, right? But he didn't have those opportunities at the beginning of his high school um, path. And so when he went to apply to colleges, when they were just looking at his overall GPA, it wasn't competitive. It was awful. And so what we were working with him on was providing those letters of recommendation that gave context, making those direct um, connections to universities and admissions departments to say, 
don't just look at his overall GPA. Please look at his overall transcript. Please understand that he was in five schools his freshman year. Please understand that once he reached stability, his GPA has been on an upwards trajectory. And when he gets to your university, it's going to keep going up, right? And so in that sense, I wanted them to know that he had moved so many times. I wanted them to know that he had had such an unstable experience because then it showed how much was his responsibility? Because yes, you are responsible for your own grade, sweetheart, to a certain extent, <laughs> right? Yeah. But also, there were some adults in your life who made some decisions that were completely out of your control, and they did not set you up in a path for success. Yeah. So how do we balance that information so that those who are receiving it have that context to the data that really tells that kid's story in a positive way? Right. And not in a negative. Oh, he was in foster care. He moved a lot. But in a positive look, when this kid is stable, he does amazing things. And you really do want him on your campus and you really do want to admit him to your university. Was he admitted? Yes. Awesome. That's that's a happy ending that I wanted there, which is great. Um, Joy and Kitty, thank you so, so much for joining. We're so lucky to have you here uh, participating in our workshop on this because these are such important perspectives. Enjoy the rest of your stay in D.C. And thank Thank you you for joining us on Tech Talk. Thank you again for letting me have this opportunity so much. Yes. And remember, she will be job hunting soon. First, first a master's in policy. Okay, All right. So maybe not right away. Not right away. We're working on it so much. Thank you. Recently, the European Parliament adopted the controversial copyright directive aimed at modernizing copyright law for the digital age and harmonizing it across the EU. Opponents of the directive, including CDT, are concerned the law will have significant unintended consequences and break the principle of fair use. Joining us today to talk about the EU copyright directive is brand new EU analyst based in Brussels, EU affairs analyst based in Brussels, Vincenzo Tiani. Welcome, Vincenzo. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to, to join you and all uh, the listeners. Yeah. So tell me about yourself first. I mean, uh, whenever we get a new team member in Europe, we're excited. What did you do uh, before joining CDT? So I have a legal background, um, but uh, three years ago I came to Brussels. Uh, I did uh, an LLM in IP and IT law, so like copyrights, privacy, and that kind of stuff. Then I did an internship in the European Parliament with the member of the European Parliament, Julia Reda, which is who is very active in the oh, yes. corporate reform. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, after that, another internship with ADRI, the European Digital Rights, another NGO like CDT that works with, uh, with digital rights. Uh, I worked as a freelance journalist for some uh, media outlets in Italy, like uh, the Italian editions of uh, Wired and the Motherboard, the, the vertical of advice on technology. Uh, and I also taught uh, copyrights in, uh, in Milan at the university uh, to communication students. That's awesome. So we really hired a ringer. That's great. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's let's put your expertise to the test here. The EU Copyright Directive, what is it for people who aren't all that familiar with it, and what was it supposed to do? Go a little bit deeper than I did in my general intro. Yeah, sure. So um, the, the Copyright Directive is, uh, has been um, approved last week in Strasbourg, 26th of March, and basically the European Commission um, 
proposed this text in later in, in November uh, of 2016 to update the former uh, directive. The former directive uh, was um, was proposed in uh, 2001. So um, you know, since in the last uh, 18 years, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of things happened, uh, <laughs> especially in the digital world. I mean, the internet so, changed uh, quite a bit in that time, huh? <laughs> yeah. Some you know little 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 startups that do some you know social things <laughs> and um, yeah so uh, the goal was uh, interesting uh, because of course um, things uh, things changed and in, uh, in, in the meanwhile uh, but uh, the final text wasn't so wasn't so good so um, first of all I would say that uh, normally. Uh, a law should prepare, should update and prepare, uh, you know, uh, for, um, should be the base for the next 20 years, let's say. Um, in this case, this directive basically just, uh, just makes some adjustment to what's, uh, what happened in the previous, uh, 15 years, 20 years. Um, so it's not, re- it's not really, uh, looking at the future. Basically, it's it just look at the past. Uh, just made some, you know, patch for what happens in the in the, in the previous years. Um, so, uh, what does he do? Uh, basically, um, there are we are talking about uh, two main articles, which are former articles uh, 11, 13, that in the final text became uh, article 15 and 17. So the the for the article former uh, article 11 now 15 basically uh, it recognizes a new um, a new right to ancillary right to publishers publishers um, basically as all we know um, you know are living uh, not not living a good period uh, <laughs> you know cases where uh, where you know digital revenues are uh, are good as uh, are good as in the past for so uh, when we think papers. about Publishers, you're talking kind of like newspapers, kind of traditional publishers. Sorry? When you're talking about publishers, you're talking about kind of, you know, traditional news outlets and whatnot. Yes? Yeah, so we are talking about yeah uh, traditional papers because uh, in fact actually uh, so these kind of publishers, so let's say as you say traditional, want this reform. But the online publishers, the new publishers, don't Mm. want this reform. That makes uh, sense. <laughs> there's a reason because basically, uh, you know, a traditional publisher used to earn a lot from, um, you know, from papers sold, and uh, and it's not the case uh, at the moment. So uh, why? Where all the money went? Basically, in the digital advertising, and basically, Google and Facebook and those social media, you know, uh, platforms uh, have, um, you know, have all these uh, these revenues. Uh, so they basically want a slice of that cake, and uh, the way they the, the way they want it is to uh, to have a new right. So um, the basis, if you have a social media or if you are an aggregator uh, where uh, news are shared by users or by, for example, by the aggregator itself, basically they say, okay, you are you have a product, you have um, something relevant, thanks to our our articles. And uh, that's not, you know, fair for us. So you should uh, provide us some money. So um, let's go with the license, and then if you pay us a license, users uh, will be able to to share content. Oh. The, the funny thing is that basically we are talking about, you know, hyperlinks. We're talking about snippets, so extracts of uh, just just a title, just an image of an article when you publish an hyperlink. Uh, that's 
these hyperlinks to snippets drive traffic directly to the to the to the journals. So it's you know your yeah. users share interesting articles and people will see these links, see these titles, and then go go to the straight to the um, to the website of the journals, and these journals make money thanks to that. So it's it's a bit weird that they are they are asking for this new new right. Yeah, um, the so seamless nature of the internet, kind of the experience we have, where we can, you know, search, discover, and navigate to, seems like it could be impacted by this. Yeah, and you know the other thing is that uh, so the, the initial text wasn't so good. Uh, I can say that now it uh, is good. Uh, at least there are some exceptions. So uh, CDT also asked for uh, for an exception to have an exception for hyperlinks, and we have in the text. Uh, there's also an exception for uh, short extracts, and we have in the text. So apparently, it could be um, you know a good a good law. But the problem is that uh, what is a short extract? It's 20 words, one word, two words, three mm. words. We don't know yet. And uh, every since this is a directive, so uh, for non-EU, um, you know, listeners, basically in within the EU we have two kinds of legislation: directive and uh, regulation. The regulation doesn't need to uh, be implemented in the in the name 27 or 28, depending on how Brexit will go. Uh, <laughs> 27 legislations, different legislations, like for the GPR, our, you know, uh, fresh uh, privacy regulation, yeah. data protection regulation. This is the directive. So basically, every member state could have a different, um, or slightly or less slightly different uh, legislation. So some, you know, in some parliament, we could have uh, a law that says that short text is uh, 20 words. So like, mm. a thing, for example, or maybe three words. So imagine if uh, you know a startup, you know, European startups want to have uh, you know create an aggregator or create the new social media, the new a new unicorn, a new Facebook. It would be basically quite uh, complex. So it's not really serving the purpose of harmonizing, is what you say, or it remains to be seen if it will, because there could in fact be twenty-seven or twenty-eight yeah. different interpretations of some of these. Yeah, and, and also, you know, also judges could, in the, you know, have a, a different interpretation of the law. So um, it's really we, we need to have to, you know, wait. And uh, the timing is two years. So um, okay. in the next two years, the, the yeah, every member state could uh, have to implement the, the law. Uh, and the next, uh, there's also a, a next vote, a final vote from the council, which will be, which will take place uh, next 25th of April. Apparently, it should be that uh, you know the the, the law could, should pass as it is, but there's still some you know space for uh, for changes. So, what would be uh, the biggest changes? About you know publishers' rights. Yeah, what would be the like one or two biggest changes that we would hope to see, or you would hope to see, uh, if at all possible? So, honestly, honestly about the publishers' uh, rights, uh, I think that's Article 11. So now Article 15 uh, should be deleted. Just deleted. Because, uh, honestly, I I don't see any CDT basically asking to to delete it, uh, and so many other um, you know um, NGOs, organization, uh, 200 academics. Uh, uh, it's really plenty of in experts uh, that that say these rights uh, are not. You don't need these rights because okay. you already can. I can have a, you know, you don't need it. Also, and a funny thing is that uh, 
uh, some years ago, uh, a couple of years ago, the European Commission um, um, asks for a, for, a, for a paper, a study, uh, to see what's the impact of aggregators, news aggregators. And the result was that basically uh, the aggregators help, uh, help the, um, the publishers. Ah. Basically, they drive traffic because they drive traffic to the publishers. Yeah, and this uh, and this study was uh, was hidden, wasn't published, and uh, was Yulia uh, Reda. Yulia uh, Reda uh, asks for uh, thanks to a voice or a request to to access um, these these files. Uh, finds out that uh, basically there was this study. Um, so you need you see already studies and also you know uh, good sense says that uh, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't have these new rights. It's a law that's working to address a problem that doesn't exist. It sounds like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Apparently, you know, when you have um, the fact is that newspaper need a new business model. That's it. Yeah. Uh, we, we've seen in U.S. You know, New York Times uh, has made uh, you know uh, good efforts, very you know, in uh, improving their digital presence, um, and now yeah, apparently it's working. Yeah, it's doing well. Uh, out there. But you need to remember that we are in 2019, not in 2009 or 2000. Uh, so yeah. So last question before I let you go. Um, you know, the principle of fair use is something that people always associate with yeah. copyright, at least here in the U.S. and I think globally. What what does this do to fair use? You've kind of touched on it, but kind of concretely, what does it do to it? Um, you know, when I think of fair use, I often go to you know clever, creative memes and stuff like that. Are are memes dead in Europe because of this? No. So yeah, this concerns the, the other article, Article Thirteen, now Article Seventeen. That's uh, that. This was this was one um, was wanted by music producer, uh, movie producers, or right holders in this kind of uh, of field. And um, what's what's the problem? What's uh, even in this case, CDT and other organization, academics asked to uh, to delay Article Thirteen. Why? Uh, because uh, right holders say, okay, when you upload, for example, a video on a major platform, let's say, for example, YouTube, uh, there are so many users that upload, uh, you know, content without having the rights. Like, um, so, and at the moment, the law, uh, it's similar to the um, to the one in the US, so it's not a synthetic down. So, uh, the right holder um, um, asks, um, send a notification to the platform and say, I have the rights on this video, and so you have to take it down. And then, mm. okay. uh, this principle, and so, what's the problem now? In, even if it's not written in the in the in the law, basically the only way we have uh, to 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 see if there is um, an infringement is the filters, like the content ID filters we have on uh, uh. on YouTube. Uh, why there we you know there are we had a campaign that say Mimi uh, could couldn't be there um, in 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 a couple of years because filters are not judges you know filters are not IP lawyers they're not able to uh, recognize all the exceptions and in within the US we've got fair use so which is it's not really uh, there are some rules of okay, of course and it's a bit different from the EU where we have really exceptions uh, it's you know a strict list of exceptions that we have in the law. But the problem is that even if we have in the law, so if, even if this directive says, okay, uh, uh, with this exception, quotation, criticism, um, caricature, par parody, pastiche, you, you don't need, you know, uh, you, you have to let it, um, you should let them be um, published. 
but the fitness doesn't doesn't know how it works. So mm-hmm. it's your automatics with an algorithm, and if they say, okay, I, you know, um, I can't recognize this, and we we could have censorship basically. Gotcha. Yeah. No. Typically, when there's a mandated technical solutions, they don't work out great. All right, Vincenzo, I'm going to let you get back to the great conference you're at there. Um, but this has been wonderful. We're going to have to have you as a guest on regularly for Tech Talk. Thanks for bringing, uh, bringing us the yeah. latest from Europe on the copyright directive. Thank you. Thank you, and bye to all our listeners. And that's it for this episode of Tech Talk. If you want to learn more about our work on student privacy or our advocacy efforts in the EU, be sure to visit cdt.org. And our EU team has their own Twitter account, so give that a follow, at cdteu. I'm Brian Wozolowski. Thanks so much for listening.